Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Once upon a time, and we're gonna go a ways back here, a strikingly beautiful woman was married to a craftsman, and he made her amazing pieces of jewelry to wear. But she loved another man, she had an affair with him, and then things got ugly. Hephaestus casts his invisible net on them, brings them in front of the gods, and all the gods laugh. But Hephaestus is very upset, uh, insisting to uh, Zeus, his father-in-law, that he repay him. He paid a good price for that trophy wife of his, and now he wants compensation. Frederick Kaufman is a professor at the Graduate School of Journalism at the City University of New York, and he's talking about the affair of Aphrodite, the goddess of love, and Ares, the god of war a relationship which reveals something about, perhaps, the greatest invention of all time, money. Aphrodite was worth something to her husband, and not just in a romantic sense. If you look at the scholars who have spent their lives looking at, quote-unquote, primitive money, they find some of their greatest stores of evidence in marriage ceremonies, because in these ceremonies, what they find again and again and again is that almost invariably there are all sorts of exchanges that accompany it. And not only that, there are all sorts of very interesting rituals, obviously marriage rituals that take place, which also deal with exchange and value. So Kaufman, who is most recently the author of The Money Plot, is writing this book about the thing that, whether we like it or not, tends to drive the world, And he keeps finding the seemingly modern concept of trophy wives all over ancient culture, almost as easily as you can find it on 21st century TV in The Real Housewives. Look at those beautiful glasses. They were 25,000. They're like four carats of diamonds, and then they're gold python, and they're made of gold. Did you know? 25,000. The original economic unit, many have argued, is the family, right? Because, of course, when you procreate, when you increase and multiply, certainly there are more mouths to feed, but you've also increased your labor supply. So some of the first equations economists see is is the family equation, and and Aristotle was one of the first to notice this, and he actually, the, the word economy comes in part from the word oikos, which was the ancient Greek word that Aristotle used to describe the family house and the family unit. But again and again, we keep thinking that turning a family into a mathematical equation is something new, something unique to our generation. In the late 1980s, an editor at Fortune magazine, Julie Connolly, wrote, and this is a quote, The more money men make, the argument goes, the more self-assured they become, and the easier it is for them to think, I deserve a queen. And to be fair to Connolly, the 80s were a decade which spawned this gem from Hollywood. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through, and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Well, the 1980s, the quote-unquote go-go 80s, the Wall Street 80s, that was a decade of Gordon Gecko and the man with the most toys wins, and uh, Wall Street was booming, fueled by all sorts of illicit drugs. And uh, the literature of the time, not only magazines were just frothing with the ideas of nascent wealth, 
Uh, you had, you know, Fortune and Manhattan Inc. And, and magazine after magazine. And then, of course, we had the work of Brett Easton Ellis and, and Jay McInerney and Tom Wolfe, Bonfire the Vanities. And, and what we saw was this, was this decade of this intense interest in the money culture of Wall Street. And then, of course, it crashes in the great insider trading scandals of, of the late 1980s and Wall Street kind of gathers itself uh, for its next cycle of boom and bust. But here's the thing. All these cutting-edge Wall Street folks were playing out the same story that Aphrodite and Hephaestus played out. The story of the man who believes his money should get him something really extraordinary. It was an old, old story. But, Kaufman discovered, so is money. You know, I live downtown New York, know a lot of Wall Street people, and I said to them, guess what I learned? Money's a fiction. And they're like, yeah, Fred, we know. Because these guys know it. That's their secret. They all know it's completely made up. And that's why in the book I say that the Wall Street guys are the greatest poets on earth. They're much better poets than the poets because their entire realm is in the fictional. So if now you're saying, wait a minute, back up. You're telling me money is a fiction? Wouldn't that mean that the inventors of money then would be storytellers, like fiction writers? Indeed, that's what it means. And of course, that brings you to plot and character and all these literary ideas. And what I realized the most uncanny thing is that, you know, because we understand that the way people have told stories has changed from myth to allegory to tragedy to epic poem to novel to short, you know, to postmodern fiction. Money changes along with it. So from the very beginning, you've got storytellers telling the story of money. And the story itself creates the thing. And as fiction gets fancier, so does money, which we will get to. But if this all seems hard to accept, consider this scenario. Let's say you've got a $20 bill just lying around somewhere in your house. Why do you think that that little piece of paper is worth $20? How do you know it is? Isn't it just a piece of paper? Well, the answer is that you believe the story that's been told to you, that $20 is worth something. And the person who accepts the 20 when you use it to, let's say, pay for a t-shirt, well, they believe the same story even though the cash is nothing, really. It's just a little green piece of paper. But the storytellers have been inventing money since the beginning, says Kaufman, way back in societies that scholars have thought would have been ruled by bartering. Actually, no. They were already run by the fiction of money. And that value was sometimes symbolized by paper or coins or shells, something fairly meaningless that people had just decided had meaning. But sometimes, as we've seen, value also came in the form of trophy wives. And when writers started writing down the most important stories they had, what did they write about? Well, not surprisingly, that great, amazing invention, money. The very first writing we see, the cuneiform tablets from about 10,000 years ago, when these are discovered and these are finally translated, the thought among a lot of these linguists was that, oh, we're going to know the great story of the ancient Sumerians. We're going to know their creation myths. We're going to know their history. But in fact, that's not what it was. It was accounting. The first 
written language <laughs> is like the great Ashurbanipal has 4,000 goats. The great Ashurbanipal has 2,000 wives. So they are absolutely linked together to the extent that the letter A, if you think about the shape mm-hmm. of the letter yeah. A, it actually is similar to the face of an ox, of an okay. oxen. So in fact, we say, I say A is for money. Because, of course, another part of primitive money before coin, clearly, which is only 500 BC, of course, there's a history of money being grain, money being domesticated animal, money being seashell, of course. There's this great history of primitive money that happens before coin and certainly before paper. So let's go back. We, we talked a little bit about uh, wives and trophy wives and getting married. You talk about the Middle Ages in Florence and already by that time, you, uh, you know, a lot of people know about the idea of the dowry, but already by that time, there were these pretty sophisticated financial instruments to figure out how you work up. You've got a daughter. You know you're going to have to pay a dowry someday. I mean, this is like a, you know, the kind of thing you get for your kid for a college now, but Talk about what existed at that time. Yeah, it was kind of like the the marriage equivalent of the five twenty nine. Exactly, a five twenty nine. That's it. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, you just you know, as, as soon as you have a kid, you get this letter. Ooh, would you like to start investing your money for your college education? Well, that's precisely what happened in 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 Florence in the fifteenth century in the wake of the Black Death, because the Black Death uh, killed more men than women. There was a dearth of grooms. Supply and demand made it clear that if you wanted to marry your daughter, you would have to give money and a lot of it. And so the government, very aware, once again stepped in and they they had this uh, program called Monte della Dotti, where in fact, when your daughter was as young as five, you could start the account and you could either do it for seven and a half or 15 years and you could gain interest on your account at at, at like 10 or 11%. I mean, this stuff- That's like a mortgage. That's like, do you want the 15 or the 30? So you know, so what's happening is your daughter's young, you know someday she's going to grow up and get married (laughs) to somebody and you need to start investing now because the dowry is going to be, it's a big chunk of change. And of course, you know, this sort of thing, this, this marriage price, bride price, is a, a, a tremendous feature of, quote unquote, you know, primitive, primitive money. Uh, we see it in Asia. We see it in Africa, in ethnographic groups that hadn't previously been discovered. We see a lot of information about this 19th and, 20, and early 20th century uh, anthropologists and ethnographers who were saying, oh, the bride price, you know, if you want to get married, then how many cows? You know, how many, how, how much perfume and soap right. and, and all this stuff are you going to give? And so what we see are these very interesting forms of asset allocation always involved in marriage. So endless rules and regulations mm-hmm. for what goes where with marriage. And this binds families together. It binds entire cultures and societies together. And so bride price and dowry has actually served a much greater purpose than just marrying off your kid. It actually has a tremendous social purpose. And this is important to realize because people, I think, often forget that money is a social construction. In other words, a dollar is a dollar because we all agree it's a dollar. Bitcoin is going up because everybody agrees they want to get in on it and it's worth something, right? right? And so people often ask, what's going to happen going forward when let's say the Fed starts emitting trillions of dollars and, and that, go to, that go to everybody for no reason and will never be able to pay it back. The question is not math. 
The question is, what kind of society do we want to have? Do we agree to use money in this way? And if we do, there should be no problem with it. Because money is always a social agreement more than anything else. A story that we want to tell about not just where we're going, but where our society in general is going and how we're going to get it there. And it's interesting. We are so deep into the fiction. Sometimes it's hard to see it. But if you've ever had um, like a baby tear your $10 bill in half or a dog chew it up, it's because they are not in on the fiction. Like they think it's a piece of paper, which it is. But, you know, we know, oh, but with this little piece of paper (laughs) cut in this particular way with these uh, pictures on it, I can get like a sandwich. So don't tear it up. It's not any paper. Yeah, and then, and then then we teach them the lie. We we like we pound the illusion into them. That's that's worth that piece of paper is worth something. That's right. That's and lunch. how do you know it's worth something? Well, it has it has, you know, that piece of paper. First of all, it has a man's face on it. Generally, not a woman's face. Mm-hmm. It has a man's face on it, and it has a pyramid, and it has some signatures, and it has that all-seeing eye, and it has a bunch of filigree and a bunch of other mysterious stuff. And yeah, it's worth something. So it's, it's really symbolic. I mean, and, and you know what's interesting is that the the numismatists, the people who who really study the coin, and I mean, I really went down, I went I went down the hole on this one with the numismatics. They actually call all those designs on dollars. That's called the legend. It's called oh. the legend. Okay. So like odd, the pyramid right? and all those things, the poor bassoon. What I don't know exactly. It's all in all the different things, but there's a, a lot on a dollar bill if you sit there and unpack it. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, that's the other thing is that money, money is gendered. And this is also a very, very ancient quality of money. Money is personified. It's either a man or a woman or it has a voice. Money does all sorts of weird things because it is our own projection into the world so that we make the world try to adapt to us. That's securitizing the future. What we're saying is, world, you're going to agree with our ideas about what you are so me and my family can be safe. And money is one of those great projections into the world. And so we can actually see it on the bills. We can see the faces. And it's so interesting that there's so much controversy that continues about women's faces on money, particularly hmm. in this country, right? Why why did the Susan B. Anthony dollar, you know, we made a lot of these. Yes. We, we made we made many millions. Nobody wanted to circulate it. Same with the Sacagawea dollar. They were like, well, we'll just keep it. We'll keep it in a collection, but we're not going to circulate it. Why is there still so much tension over replacing Andrew Jackson with Harriet Tubman, right? It's because secretly we do believe that money is some sort of a personification. And we know deeply that it's a symbol and we have to be comfortable with that symbol. And we're just not comfortable yet for some reason. Let me ask you um, two related questions about uh, both how narratives affect money and then about how money affects narratives. Obviously, a very powerful book in Western culture is the Bible. And the Bible says, uh, this is Exodus chapter 22, verse 25, if you lend money to my people, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. Obviously, people read that. They knew about it. I wonder what they made of it, because I can tell you, people do charge other people interest. So how do you kind of sort through that? This is one of the most fascinating 
parts of the history of money. You know, I, when I first started thinking about writing this book, I was really just going to focus on 1971. Really, the whole book was going to be in 1971 and President Nixon floating the dollar. In other words, okay. saying the dollar is no longer related to gold. It's just paper. Okay. Do what you will with it. And then my editor was like, no, you have to go more. You have to go deeper. And so I started going all through history and I found myself completely enmeshed in medieval history because this is actually where the action is with money. The commercial revolution of the Middle Ages is when modern money becomes modern money. And it's so interesting because this is one of the great misconceptions of history, which is that the the great Catholic Church of medieval times of the Middle Ages, with all of their laws against usury, were holding money back. But in fact, that whole story changed the historians started looking at it very closely and they realized that the medieval Christian church was the largest corporation in the world. Okay. And that is not only that, but it was a multinational corporation. Okay. So you had all this money. Yeah, you had all this money from all over the world coming in. And not only that, but they were mortgaging properties. They were doing all of these things, fancy things with money. Okay. Now, how is that possible? Yeah, right. How did that happen, right? But there is this monk, there's this particular monk <laughs> named John Cassian, who I tell his story in the book, but to cut right to the chase, okay. he really felt that there was a new way of reading, reading, reading the Bible and understanding the Bible that nobody had come up with yet. What he called is a very fancy, like kind of lit crit word, anagogy, anagogical reading. And the idea is you're reading all text backwards. You start at the end and the end defines what's in the beginning. And for John Cassian during the Middle Ages, okay. the end was the end of the world, the apocalypse. And so what he said is that everything in the Bible can be read in light of the apocalypse. It's all kind of a, a foreshadowing of the apocalypse or the apocalypse is going to happen, therefore this happened. But you have to know the end before the beginning and the end is always defined in the beginning. Now this, this is why the word finance even enters medieval English. The word finance, originally F-Y-N-A-N-C-E. F-Y-N is the end, like oh, F-I-N. Yes, right, fine, right, right. The end, or even the word fine. Or finally. The word fine. Finally, exactly, finance. Finance is the art of the ending. So in other words, if somebody gives you a mortgage, they know the last date of your payment before it even begins. Mm -hmm. They can tell you the final interest payment. You know, we have quarterly reports at the end of the quarter. You're paid at the end of the hour. All money is based on this idea of the end is defined first. Think about the 529. Think about the investment for your daughter. It's all about foreseeing into the future and then counting back. And of course, this aligns perfectly with Christianity, because the story of Christianity all depends on the reincarnation of Christ, the second coming of Christ, where we will be redeemed, where the final payments will be made. And so these two things, these two things aligned very closely during the Middle Ages, and this was the flowering of the money culture in Europe as never before. And if you think about it, in the year 500, Europe was a cultural backwater. You know, the great civilizations of Asia and right. Ethiopia were eating its lunch. A thousand years later, the year 1500, Europe was just like they were eating everybody else's lunch. They were the nastiest, meanest conquistadors out there. Why did that happen? Look at the money. You know, as Woodward and Bernstein say, follow the money. So, I mean, 
I know we could spend a whole hour on on this question. We won't. Um, but am I just being really skeptical and cynical in saying like, so is this a guy you're telling me who just took a book, shook it, you know, sort of by uh, like took it upside down, shook it and said, I got to figure out a way that we can charge interest on loans. <laughs> How can we do this? Could we read it front to back? No. Back to front? Okay, yes, I think that'll work. Look, the the Catholic Church was already deeply involved in mortgaging their properties. And the Catholic Church was already deeply involved in global entrepreneurship Mm. and people going across state lines and country lines. And they were already deeply involved in money changing. And so they needed to avoid this one chapter, you know, the, the single edict in the Old Testament, right? They needed to get around it. And so they set they have, you know, if, if you study medieval period, there are this group of scholars are called scholastics and schoolmen. And so they kind of sicked them on this problem. <laughs> <laughs> and they came up with all these wild and crazy solutions, basically saying, well, you can charge. It's not really interest if you already in advance say that when I get the money back, I'll have more of it. It's the only rational thing for money to do to increase and multiply. And of course, you can't have both at the same time. And that's why if you really if you really want to go to sleep at night and bore yourself to death with prose, which is torturous, read that. Read the medieval scholastics trying to explain away what they can't explain away. Well, what's interesting, too, is that the, the narrative that money um, and uh, the life of Jesus are intertwined uh, exist today. Like uh, if you uh, look at the preaching of Joel Osteen and this idea of prosperity, the prosperity gospel and prosperity theology, that the goal of Christianity is really that you should be wealthy. Like that is the greatest manifestation of real belief, right? I mean, that, that, that never went away. No, the gospel of prosperity, absolutely. But what's so interesting here also is that the whole notion of a limited liability corporation, the corporation, in fact, uh, the modern conception of it happens in about the year 1250 with uh, one of my great heroes, Pope Innocent IV, who basically said that the Catholic Church as a whole, including all of its holdings, all of its financial holdings, created a body, what he called a persona ficta, a fictive body. So therefore, if you squandered the church money, he said, you're squandering the blood of Christ. And if you squander the church's money, you'll not only get a malediction from me, but you'll never make it to heaven. We're, we're going to get rid of you. And so this whole idea of the corporate body being a personal body, which of course has come down to haunt us through the idea of, you know, in politics today, the idea of corporate free speech. And there are literary terms and terms of art to describe metaphors in which parts of things stand for whole things. And whole things can be fragmented and split into parts, yet remain in our imagination indicative of the whole. Let's pause here for just a minute. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Frederick Hoffman. He's the author of The Money Plot, A History of Currency's Power to Enchant, Control, and Manipulate. If you want to read more on everything from ancient money to our increasing reliance on cashless transactions, we've got more for you at our website, innovationhub.org. From PRX and GBH Radio, this is Innovation Hub. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. Sometime in his 50s, we think, a guy who had mostly been down on his luck struck gold. He had worked in tax collection, he'd been an accountant, but his real fame would come in the realm of fiction. Or perhaps it's more accurate to say, the realm of money and fiction. This is an extraordinary moment in the history of money, and it it has such ramifications that are kind of, were, were impossible to even imagine at the time. That's Frederick Kaufman. He's the author of the book, The Money Plot, a book which argues something shocking, and then on reflection, maybe not all that shocking, money is a fiction. It's a concept created by storytellers, and as narratives have gotten more complicated, from epic poetry and stories of gods and goddesses, to the Bible, to novels, money has also gotten more complicated. Which brings us back to the down-on-his-luck guy who struck gold, literary gold, by writing a book. The book we're talking about is Don Quixote. And the only one Shakespeare was ever worried about as a rival of his when he was alive was Cervantes, the writer of Don Quixote. And I'm just going to say that if you're the only person that Shakespeare is worried about as a rival, that's pretty impressive. But when Don Quixote came out in the early 1600s, Miguel de Cervantes had seen some pretty crazy stuff when it came to money. The area that is now Spain had struggled a lot financially, partially because they had printed tons and tons of money. And the money almost became a mockery of itself. It looked like it was worth something, but really, it wasn't worth that much. King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella had financed an Italian guy, Christopher Columbus, to hopefully bring them a bunch of money from a land across the ocean and bail them out. But actually, the precious metals that Columbus extracted from the native peoples in the Americas set up, Kaufman says, terrible boom and bust cycles in Spain. Right up until that time of Cervantes, money is almost always locked into some sort of materialized physical form. Is it a fetish item? Is it a seashell? Is it a wife? Is it, is it a, a rock or, or, or a skull? And, and the classic example is gold. Money locked into gold, which people are still have a hard time figuring out. A dollar unattached from gold. And Cervantes was watching Spain's financial disasters firsthand. A great kingdom had fallen on hard times. Don Quixote, the character, thought of himself as pretty amazing, but it was illusions of grandeur. He thought a simple inn was a castle, that its owner was nobility, that a local prostitute was a high-bred lady. Don Quixote, the, the first part, and then there's a second part, which comes out 10 years later. And the first part is a very funny book, and it's a huge bestseller. And then the second one appears 10 years later, and in the book, Don Quixote is aware he's famous. It's like, why are you famous? They ask me. So, well, there's been a book written about me. Okay. And so, and so now everybody is like blown away. Like nobody ever pulled that trick before. Yeah, nobody had pulled that trick before in, until Cervantes. And so what you have here is the birth of the modern novel right in that instant. Money up till that time had been written about in neat equations. People were loaned land with interest. Women were given in marriage with dowries. People were given coins in exchange for, let's say, wheat. But Cervantes had seen money for the fiction that it was. It was just an idea, a reality that's only real if we all agree to it. When Don Quixote acknowledged the fiction that he was locked into, it opened up all sorts of possibilities for people who had been locked into fictional equations, like women, like slaves. What if they knew what was happening to them? And what if they wanted out 
And so that's when the characters start insisting, as you point out, the wife starts saying, no, 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 I'm not just wife. And the slave says, I am not just slave. I am person. I am not just character in your little book of life. I've got my own thing going. And so the same thing happens with money. Kaufman argues that as fiction got more complicated, so did money, which he says was an invention of storytellers. And money, like characters, wanted to be free. And that's proven clearly by by cryptocurrencies, which are completely free of, well, they're not exactly free of critical constraints because they actually end up spending, taking a lot of, there's a huge energy hit mining these things, particularly Bitcoin. But conceptually, they are free. There is no underlying value to the money. And this allows modern money. This is why finance and fractional banking and retail banking in which banks hold a certain amount of money yet can lend out great multiples of that. This is the whole credit economy in which money increases and multiplies. Money has a life of its own. And that's made possible in this kind of weird shift for various historical and philosophical reasons right at the beginning of the 16th century when all of a sudden money takes its first real steps breaking free from physical constraint. And of course, one end of that story is, of course, 1971, when Nixon finally floats the dollar. And he says there will be no gold or any underlying value of the dollar except a story. And that story is called, quote, full faith and credit of the United States. And it's just, they stamp it on paper and believe it or not, that made the dollar the most powerful currency in the history of Earth and the most powerful metaphor ever. So let's fast forward to that moment. What was the struggle like to say, you know, this thing, this piece of paper, which is just like a rectangular piece of paper, um, it is not going to be tied to something that's like, quote unquote, real, like gold or, you know, physical. It's just a fiction. If I give you $20, it has meaning because you believe it does and I believe it does and lots of people believe it. But I mean, it's just a piece of paper. Like I said, if a dog would eat it, like because they don't know that it's fictional. Um, so what was that struggle like to have America say, nah, we're just... We're buying into the fiction. Forget that gold. Well, it's so interesting because many people at the time thought it was going to be the end of Western civilization. They thought if Nixon were to... 1971 was going to yeah, be 19, the end. It was August. Yeah, it was, it was on <laughs> Friday the 13th. It actually, the whole thing began on Friday the 13th of August, okay. 1971, okay. when Nixon and 15 others went up to Camp David. The problem was, uh, for various reasons, technical reasons, uh, which, you know, let's spend another hour on this one, <laughs> that, that, that there is about seven times as many paper dollars in the world as there was gold in the Federal Reserve to back it. And what was happening is a number of the other countries on earth, like France and England and, and Switzerland and Canada, were basically saying, you know, we want our gold. All these paper dollars, we want to change them to gold. And of course, they were going to run out of gold. And if they ran out of gold, then the dollar would tank. And of course, we're in the middle of the Cold War. It, it, was, it was a mess. And so Nixon's uh, Treasury Secretary, John Connolly, you know, this, you know, this kind of such an interesting character. You know, he was in the jump seat of the car when JFK is shot. Mm-hmm. He is uh, the only Democrat in the Nixon administration. He's an, a Texas oil man, the ex-governor of Texas. He's the secretary of the Treasury at the time that this happens. And basically, he's kind of, he's like, let's just do it. Let, let's, just, let's just do it. Let's disconnect it and let it be everybody else's problem, right? There are many people in the administration who are convinced that when this happens, it's going to be the end 
of the dollar. But really, they have no choice. Two days later, on, on Sunday, August 15th, 1971, Nixon goes on national television and he basically says that the dollar is, you know, they're going to disassociate it from gold. In recent weeks, the speculators have been waging an all-out war on the American dollar. The strength of a nation's currency is based on the strength of that nation's economy. And the American economy is by far the strongest in the world. Accordingly, I have directed the Secretary of the Treasury to take the action necessary to defend the dollar against the speculators. And the next day is, by percentages, the best day ever in Wall Street. Everybody yay. is like, yay, this is the best thing ever. Uh, and, and so much money is made in, from the you know, 70s, 80s, 90s. I mean, this directly leads to that go-go 80s, so that money culture. Money wants to be free, and once it's set free, it has a life of its own, and it just goes. And, and the metaphorical quality of money... That was just the first step. If we look at what's going on today in, in Wall Street in terms of index funds, not just cryptos, but in terms of index funds mm-hmm. and how money is generally being invested and, and all sorts of interesting um, bellwethers for money, such as the infamous VIX, which is the fear index on Wall Street, mm-hmm. and the option business and the futures business and the derivatives business, we are seeing money becoming not just a metaphor, but metaphors of metaphors of metaphors, farther and farther into these kind of deep and dark ethereal reaches. And that's kind of where we are today with money, and that is one of the reasons why there is this wide popular acceptance of crypto, because the dollar doesn't seem all that different. It's funny because I remember when I was a kid hearing that the stock market was always a um, sort of epic struggle between fear and greed, which, you know, I think about the book you wrote and how that sounds, it sounds also like some sort of medieval story, like fear versus greed, you know, like they're these sort of dueling forces, but but that's always what I used to hear about the stock market. That's why it goes up and down. People get fearful and then they get greedy. But not only that, that's the idea is that, and I spent a fair bit of time on this too, is that is the fear and greed have now been quantified mathematically. Yeah. Mathematically quantified by the quantitative finance people at hedge funds. So the idea is that you can actually gauge through all sorts of very complicated partial derivatives based on options that are being taken on the level and the volatility of them. I know this sounds very complicated. You can gauge fear on the market and they actually have a name for it. It's called gamma. That's what fear is. Vega is volatility. There's this bizarre Greek alphabet that the quantitative finance people at hedge funds in Wall Street use to make money understanding human motivation. In other words, they're novelists. Mm-hmm. They're, they're like the great novelists of our time. They understand the most intricate sets of human motivation, and that's how they make their money, by anticipating the end of the story before it ends. If you're an author, you generally know how the story is going to end. That's what they do mathematically. And that's why just uh, not too long ago, we had this GameStop debacle yes, where, you had, yes. where you had this whole thing where there is this a stock that was clearly underwater – that all of the quantitative finance people were saying, nah, this is going down. And so they all bet on its downward movement. But what they didn't see was a bunch of 
barbarians at the gate, meaning Reddit, saying, hey, I like this. Let's buy it. And the thing just shot up and up and doubled and doubled again and kept doubling. And the uh, the hedge funds lost their shirt. So, and I should say, it's just a physical, GameStop is just a physical store. You People may have been there that sells <laughs> video games. But when you say like the stock went up and up, it went up not for any reason, but basically because it was going up. I mean, I, I know that sounds insane, but because people said, let's buy the stock. But this is the whole thing about money. That The whole point about money is everybody thinks it's mathematical and rational. And certainly it has to obey to a certain extent the laws of math, but it certainly doesn't have to obey the laws of rationality, you know, uh, and it doesn't. And, and it certainly doesn't because money is essentially an irrational thing. It's the purview of the soothsayer, of the shaman, of religion, where you're actually imbuing an artifact outside of yourself with all sorts of powers, with all sorts of powers. And so essentially, it doesn't reveal itself to be that except in times of bizarre and in times of crisis. And then all of a sudden, money reveals itself for what it truly is. Hmm. Let's break here. I want to come back and talk more about this kind of era of speculation that we live in right now and whether we should be concerned about a stock market that's just about doubled in the last year, uh, about stocks that spike up because people say to buy them on Reddit. You can find this whole conversation on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. From PRX and GBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller. This is Innovation Hub. We're going to be right back. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. If you've ever seen the movie Mary Poppins, you might remember one particular part of the story, the run on the bank. It's a tense, exciting moment, and it's a particularly good plot point in a piece of fiction because the bank itself is also a fiction. The bank says it has your money, but it doesn't really. It lends most of your money out to other people or out to other institutions. Now, fortunately, most people don't ever ask to see their money just to, let's say, sit next to it in their living room because it's just an idea anyway. There would have been times in history when money would have been symbolized by gold or beads or strips of green paper with dead presidents on them. But of course, money isn't really any of those things. What it is, argues Frederick Hoffman, is a great invention an invention of storytellers, which is to say, a fiction. If we go back through time, we'll see that step by step along the way, money and story have developed in parallel. And it's because they're kind of one in the same thing. And that's what blew my mind. Kaufman is the author of The Money Plot, and he argues that as fiction has developed, so has one of its leading lights, money. We now live in a world that's up to its neck in money-based fictions. 
Before the crash of 2008, people bought little slivers of other people's home mortgages, which can't be much more than an idea because what does a bundle of other people's home mortgages even look like? In the last year alone, the stock market has just about doubled. So does that mean if you own Disney stock and you've seen it skyrocket, is Disney a far more valuable company than it was just a year ago? Well, I guess. But you can start to see how, kind of like Disney products themselves, we are pretty deep into the realm of the conceptual. There is a magical quality that is dangerous. I think it's a little bit frothy. To be fair, though, what is froth? In January of 2009, a new currency debuted on the scene. It said it was a new currency, and it was. It was a cryptocurrency, something that's digital only, and supposedly impossible to counterfeit. It was called Bitcoin, and it even had kind of a mythological founding by a guy named Satoshi Nakamoto, who may or may not exist. Now, I'm not going to pretend to understand Bitcoin or how it got going, but I will tell you that between April of 2020 and April of 2021, one Bitcoin went from being worth about $6,000 to being worth about $60,000. So if you, like me, didn't invest in it, you really missed out. I may have no idea what it is, but still. Frederick Kaufman says there's a reason that the particular fiction of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies has come along at this moment. With all this frothiness of Wall Street and this very strong sense that the profits of hedge funds and the profits of Wall Street aren't really related to underlying values so much, that cryptocurrencies are themselves archaic. We're going back through them to the very early ideas of money, that it's some sort of magical emblem that's going to secure our future, a literal token of value, hmm. a token. And that's also why we're seeing increasingly in artisanal currencies, we're seeing an interest in universal basic income, which is essentially saying money is really not at all what we thought it was before. It's just a tool that we can do with what we want. Money is in a, is in a real moment of transition, and that's because the world is in a real moment of transition. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. You know, the, the, the Middle Ages were a very apocalyptic time. Things were looking bad in Europe, the yeah. bubonic plague. And yet out of that time came, came some of the most revolutionary um, new ideas and concepts in money that drove Europe to this, these astounding heights. And I think the same thing is happening now. I think the world perceives on many levels a crisis. Uh, and out of that is coming all sorts of creative ways of trying to figure out where do we put our faith, our full faith and credit, where is value? How does that work? And so... So I'm not, I'm not entirely worried on that level. I, I do have faith in, in human creativity and, and innovation, and, and that extends most directly to money. I mean, what we're looking at now, we're about going to see this summer, is the Boston Fed and MIT are in July going to present their first models of a digital dollar, a dollar that is actually finally playing catch up with the cryptocurrencies out there. You know, China already has a digital dollar. We're going to hear from the Eurozone soon. The, the Bahamas the Bahamas actually have a fully working sand dollar. So we're going to see innovation. We're going to see change. And um, interesting times. Can I, can I just ask you what a digital dollar is? Or is that too hard to understand? Well, the funny thing is nobody knows yet what a digital oh, dollar okay. is, right? Because they, but, but for instance, if, if you, if you look at, um, 
and there are different there are different concepts of it. And some people, of course, say, well, most dollars are digital anyway. And it's true that only about five percent of the world's money actually is physical form anyway. Right. The rest is simply you know flickering on screens. But for instance, the Chinese digital dollar is is um, and they're, and they're still. Uh, they haven't presented it officially yet. It's still in test phases. But what it is, it's a currency directly available from the central bank, which would could conceivably be, let's say, downloaded on your on your mobile phone so that when you're paying for something, you don't have to go through MasterCard or Visa or Amex or even your bank account, that you could actually go straight from your money account with the central bank. And of course, they could deliver money to you. They could tax money. You know, there's no more dark money. There's no more cash anonymity. And also, they can, uh, as I say, they can just give you money. They can give you money at a negative interest rate so that it slowly decays. They could give you money with an expiration date if you don't sell this. You know, there are all sorts of things you can do with central bank digital currencies, right? Lots of things that that, that are available. So this is happening, and it's, and it's happening very soon. And there's, we're seeing a lot, tremendous amount of innovation um, based on, you know, this idea of, as you put it, illusion rampant. Mm. And what do we do with that? You know, for a normal person who does not work on Wall Street, looking at this issue of fiction and money being so intertwined and um, and so much, it's so clear that so much of what's done on Wall Street is is so complex and there is this kind of, you know, building on a fiction on a fiction – um, does that to you uh, connect to the fact that, you know, the, the very richest people in America, but also in the world, control so much of the world's money right now? Do they understand that fiction better? Do people, the, uh, do the rest of us not understand it enough? That, that's such a deep, that's such a deep question. You know, Bronislaw Malinowski was this Austrian economist who right at the beginning of World War II left his country and went to uh, the Trobriand Islands in Melanesia to discover what he, what he thought would be the magic of plenty, this kind of primitive economics. And what he discovered was this extraordinary thing called the Kula trade among all the, all the islanders. And they would travel from one island to the next in this epic 10-year counterclockwise and clockwise circular motion, trading red shell armbands for white shell armbands. And when all, it was, all was said and done, they came back to the original island with the same kind of shells they left with. And, and Malinowski was completely dumbfounded by this. Like, why risk life and limb for something that they could have done right here? And the Trobriand Islanders are saying, yes, but that's the magic of plenty. And so what he realized is what he was, he was money blind. He couldn't see the money in the shells. He couldn't see that what was going on was that there was status. There was all sorts of risk being taken. Because, of mm. course, one thing we really haven't discussed is, is the idea of risk and gambling, as an essential right. quality of money, which would be a whole other segment then too. But all of these people who had been involved in the Kula trade uh, had conquered risk and thus had increased their status among others. But almost all of the most valuable Kula, that is these white shell armbands, were owned by like the top 10% of the chiefs. Mm. <laughs> so in other words, income inequality has you know been there for, yes. <laughs> right, it's odd, right. has been with us a hell of a long time. You look at the Gilded Age, now it is more pronounced than ever. It is a big problem and everybody knows it's a big problem because as I said before, money is a social construct. And when you have 
the top 1% and the top 10th of 1% owning half of everything, that social construct goes out the window. We no longer feel that kind of, of cohesion. And that we saw this very clearly with COVID. We saw it very clearly with COVID with the top 1% and the top 10th of 1% just hightailing it out of town. Mm-hmm. That's it. We're done. See you later. We got our big house with our tennis court and our pool and we're safe. And we got our own ventilators, by the way, too. Right? And so we are in times where the stresses really are within nations. Can the nations themselves hold themselves together? And money has been traditionally one of the things that holds us together full faith and credit of the United States dollar. And so that's one thing that we're going to have to fix. That is one thing we're going to have to fix. We're going to have to we're going to have to really come together on money if we're going to go forward as a society. Frederick Kaufman is author of The Money Plot, a history of currency's power to enchant, control and manipulate. He's a professor of English and journalism at the City University of New York. Frederick, thank you so much. This is great. Thank you so much. know how you have seen the story of money changing in your own life. Have there been plot twists that have surprised you? We're on email, innovationhub at wgbh.org. We're also on Twitter at iHubRadio. We're on Facebook. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Elizabeth Ross, producer Mark Sollinger, and associate producer Sarah Leeson. We had production help from Hanakiros. From PRX and GBH, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub.